Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat and with me today is Tom Forthrop. Tom has covered Southeast Asia since 1979 as a journalist, as a filmmaker and also is a researcher with Chiang Mai University. Now Tom, you've done extraordinary amounts of work with the Mekong River and its plight. We've had droughts and floods and how is the river stacking up today after everything that has happened over the last 20 years? Well, I think the Mekong River today should be seen if it was a human being. A patient in a hospital would be in a critical state, an ICU. The amount of damage which is of course, with a river, is cumulative. It's not just one dam, it's a collection of dams. We call them a cascade. So first you have the cascade of Chinese dams, which have done massive damage. They block sediment. They, I mean, the, the amount of sediment reduced to the downstream is massive. And uh, on top of that, since uh, about a decade, 10 years ago, then the first dam project on the lower Mekong, which is our region of Southeast Asia, that was unfilled by the Lao government uh, in connection and their partnership with the Thai energy companies and in particular a huge construction company which built the Sabri Dam. And, and so we now have the, the, the damage uh, which is now being inflicted not just by China upstream, but also you've got the Sabri Dam has been completed in 2009. And part of my most recent research has been all about showing that according to farmers and fishermen, the biggest and worst impacts have actually been felt by the Sabari Dam because that's much closer to the border between Thailand and the Mekong is between the two and Lao on the other side. So the Sabari Dam is the dam which is breathing down the necks of millions of people in northeastern Thailand who have long depended on fish for their basic diet for their families, uh, for the communities, in much the same way as people here in Cambodia are hugely dependent. Right. And of course, this is the subject of your latest film, A River Screams for Mercy, Murdering the Mekong. It's, pretty, it's a pretty blunt title. It is indeed. Uh, a previous title of our documentary was Killing the Mekong Dam by Dam which gave the precisely the cumulative uh, effects that we, we wanted to convey that by building, it's not just one dam, but it's a collection of dam after dam. And now, <clears throat> when the river itself is having the life of the river sucked out of it, the life of a healthy river, according to anyone that studied rivers, any of the big rivers of the world, it has to be free-flowing. 
Well, then it's not a river if it's not. <laughs> exactly. And that's what's happening to the Mekong today. If all these if the 11 dams scheduled for downstream, if they all go ahead, we won't have a Mekong River anymore. We will have a collection of stagnant lakes, uh, reservoirs, reservoirs, etc., etc. And there will be no fish migration. The fish will be trapped in their reservoirs. So mm -hmm. that means now I've been seeing as over 60% of the 1,000 so species identified of fish in the Mekong. Uh, that means that uh, more than 50% of the fish species of the Mekong will become exterminated. Now, we're looking at different types of dams as well. There's been damming in the tributaries and damming across the mainstream. Uh, I think the Stimson Research Centre has estimated something like 130 dams altogether from top to bottom, and I would assume that would include the tributaries. How, how many dams are you looking at in your latest film? Where, where, are, where are we with this dam construction? And I, you were saying earlier before we went on air that um, uh, there's a new, there's basically a, a, another swag of dams yes. is about to be go under Correct. as of next year. Yeah. Well, as you know, the, <clears throat> the process for the dams uh, being unlaunched, uh, being launched and being unfold, unfolding on the, on the river, um, it goes through this Mekong River Commission consultation process, mm -hmm. which is a very limited form of consultation. It doesn't permit uh, any kind of serious dialogue about whether a dam should be built or not. Yeah, there was something that kind of bothers me, the... The MRC, which is based in Vientiane these days, has become very slick in terms of putting out press releases and saying we're doing things and meeting people, uh, taking into consideration their concerns. But all these dams have been presented as a fait accompli. Never, uh, it's never a question whether the dam will be built or not. It's just, mm -hmm. oh, okay, what have you got to say about it? Mm -hmm. Hurry up, get on with it, and uh, we'll be on our way and start building. And this is precisely the reason that the, some of the most respected NGOs that are dealing with the issue of river conservation and keeping and maintaining the health of the free-flowing river, for example, mm -hmm. international rivers, yep. no longer attends. The so-called stakeholder forums of MRC right. having been increasingly boycotted by organisations representing the actual communities mm. the, the, of all the stakeholders in building a dam, the people that live on the river, have lived there for generations, their parents, their grandfather, etc. For generations, they have been a part of the river and they've had a partnership with nature and with a free-flowing river. Mm -hmm. Com river communities don't destroy rivers. People that come from outside which are the people who have the major clout and influence in the Mekong River Commission, the dam builders, the investors, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank. These are the institutions and organizations which are pulling the strings of the MRC and they're not the slightest bit interested in the voices of the opposition. For, so we, mm -hmm. could, we can correctly uh, describe the people that want to say to the MRC, 
frankly, we don't want your dam, even if you're going to tell us it's a nice dam, a well-mitigated dam, it's going to reduce a little bit of the environmental damage. The people out there who are seeing less and less of their fish catch every mm -hmm. year are saying, stuff it, we're not going to attend your forums anymore. And that, so the MRC no longer represents, if it ever represented, the citizens of the Mekong. Right. I cannot remember uh, seeing mention of a boycott in any of their press releases. Uh, we've had uh, a three-year drought, followed by heavy rains this year. Uh, much of those rains were unseasonal, but they were heavy nevertheless. And the MRC, again, has said that the drought is over. But what did the drought reveal over the last three years? We had that combination of dams and drought. We had allegations that... Uh, China was not releasing water into the, and it was holding it back. Uh, I think the Stimson Centre said uh, water hoarding. What was telling about the last three, four years of drought? What it revealed was, uh, first of all, the vulnerability of that river system, of that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And that the combination of, uh, okay, you know, you can point out to problems of rainfall and and. And uh, problems of rainfall. You can point out to there wasn't as, as much rain as usual, but this is a flimsy, a flimsy pretext for not looking at the deeper roots of the problems of droughts and floods, which comes from the impact of dams, the withholding of water, particularly it withholds the water during the rainy season. So if you have the combination of, uh, of, of, for example, in 2019, which was the first year of mm -hmm. the major, the, the most, the, this current cycle of droughts, uh, at that particular time, when there was, there was a lack of rainfall, but this was greatly exacerbated by a huge amount of water storage in some big dams up in China, Jinghong Dam, for example, mm -hmm. And, and also, which was apparently impounding water at that time, and also the newly, uh, the, the, the dam which was just in the process of being launched was the Sarburi Dam, right. which was almost nearing completion. So it was impounding water. It had to impound water in order to test the dam and to, and to, and to prepare themselves for launching the dam. So that was a, that was, was a huge impact. And, all of civil society concerned with the northeastern Thailand were complaining about the impact of the Sarburi Dam. And, uh, of course, the, the dam company did not answer the allegations, did not answer right. the claims. But what, what, what disturbs me is the inability of the uh, Thai, Lao, Cambodian, Chinese governments to explain the economics of it all. And as we both know, there's a lot of change happening in energy production. For example, Sun Cable in Australia is building the world's largest solar panel farm and is planning to export energy to Singapore by 2028. And by the end of the decade, it hopes to be uh, uh, supplying Singapore with 15% of its energy needs. Now, Singapore is looking at hooking into the Asian electricity grid. Now, you're going to have Lao, which was singing the great song about raising its impoverished people out of, you know, depths and despair of poverty by being the battery of Asia. But with what's happening 
in modern technology, Australia is going to be a competitor for supplying energy needs. Where, what's it, where's this going to leave all the dams 10, 20, 30 years from now? Well, I think something that uh, is not sufficiently being publicised and not sufficient. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the reporting or reporting on the economics of dams is extremely weak. Right. We have the majority of business reports from the region, whether they be Singapore media or Thai media, uh, most of, and even some of the better publications. Very few people are looking at the question of, are these dams economically uh, competitive, economically rational, taking into account escalating risks from extreme weather, which can mean that at any time there could be a new drought Mm -hmm. on the Mekong, and the more dams being built, that will make it worse. and uh, there are so, issues with earthquakes, yes, and uh, there's issues with glaciers melting. Mm. The Mekong depends on Tibetan glaciers, right? Tibetan glaciers are among the most critically endangered at this present time, and uh, that means that the prospects of the prospects of these new dams which might be launched in the next six months along the Mekong, and there are three dams in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is around Zabri, that, that cluster of dams? Uh, well, yes, one is Pat Ben, right. which, which is up the road. Yep. Uh, down, you, know, so you have uh, you, Pat Ben would, mm-hmm. be, would be north of Lohan Provence, and then they also plan to launch a very controversial dam very close to the World Heritage City of Right, yeah. And there's another dam also called the Pak Lai Dam. Now, the Luan Dam will be the largest of all the dams so far, even larger than the Sarpuri Dam. Mm-hmm. Same company, same corporation, same team. And uh, that dam will not be completed before 2030. By 2030, if you are in the field of risk analysis, if we, we, Mm -hmm. uh, risk analysis, as we know, is primarily often looking at things like terrorism and things which are more very, we can appear to be quantifiable Mm -hmm. in some way. But risk analysis should increasingly be looking at the impact of extreme weather and, and, and the possibility of interaction with earthquakes because northern Laos, where all these dams are being built, is a notoriously seismic active earthquake region. They had earthquake um, only about three three weeks ago, in, not far from Lone Prabang. It happened to be a small earthquake. Sure, but they get bigger. Exactly. And the point is this, there is nothing within the capacity and resources of earth-resistant dams which can anticipate extreme earthquakes. And they can't say, they can only say the dam should resist an earthquake of up to, say, six on the Richter scale. Mm -hmm. But we're getting dams in different places in the world which are seven and eight. And I talked to a Thai 
expert on earthquakes, seismologist, one of the best in Thailand, who has investigated the active fault only eight kilometers outside of the Long Prabang uh, dam site. Yep. And this, I asked him the all important question, is this a passive or an active fault? Mm. An active fault means it could lead to an earthquake quite easily. Okay? And he says, this is definitely an active fault. And what to my, what, for me, it's absolutely amazing that the Mekong River Commission has done their report on the, you know, potential problems with regard to the uh, a possible earthquake or wh whether this was a serious danger. And their report completely failed to consult any earthquake specialist. They did it all with engineers doing modeling exercises inside laboratories, whereas the earthquake specialist I talked to had taken the trouble to visit the to visit this active fault, mm. to take measurements, and write a paper and produce a paper, which the Mekong River Commission as in a has, peer review has completely yeah it's being peer yep. reviewed but it's being completely ignored by it. it's right. not it's not said it's not cited it's not mentioned mm. in the Mekong. The problems with the Mekong are many: uh, climate change, fish stocks, rising salinization coming up from the South China Sea. Tributaries out to the South China Sea uh, have been uh, another least two out of 12 uh, that have ceased to exist. The sand dredging, uh, the replenishment of silt, and there are other issues too, uh, such as um, uh, Thailand buying up all the electricity supplies, one can only guess, to on sale. But the people who are making the money out of it are the people who are building the dams, and they just get lump sums from uh, banks, and notoriously, that money is, uh, they call it 10% all the way down the food chain, where people are simply scamming off the top, 10%, 10%, 10% all the way through. Is that going to change? No, it's not going to change. It's, uh, because this is what propels the current uh, choice of hydropower by various corrupt governments around the world. No matter how risky dams are, no matter how much they now become a, a potentially obsolete investment, because if there's not enough water in, mm. the, in the next five or ten years, these dams will be built, they will do the damage to the ecosystem, and then because of uh, the, all, all the problems of lack of water, the dams may never function. They will be obsolete before they are completed, which means that if if that is a serious risk probability, people mm. should be analysing that now, and people should be saying, "What's the point of building new dams when we could get all the energy we need for Cambodia and for for Laos yeah. from solar power, from wind power?" That makes a lot of sense, but. Uh... If you're uh, if you have contracts with government, dams are marvelous. They cost three billion dollars. It's one project in one spot. And it's three billion bucks. It's a hell of a big whack for one it's, it, uh, it, enormous amount of money. The, actually, dams are a very good symbol of two things that they represent mm. in 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 the in the world order we live in at the present time. A world order which, which mm. incidentally appears to be collapsing in many forms. 
Dams have always been uh, an ego thing for many rulers. That they, it's something that they like to show off to their people. Uh, you know, like the Aswan Dam in Egypt. Sure, I mean, that's like ago. building skyscrapers in cities, but I'd like, right. um, the, there's plenty of them around and they're all empty. But the point, the point <laughs> is also that yeah. um, but the other, haven't, we grown, haven't we outgrown that? Yeah, uh, no, I don't think so. A country like Laos is, is sort of, they, they, here is a little landlocked country mm. which, uh, where the rulers are desperate to improve their, their quote, prestige or their... Uh, As know, opposed to the lot of their people. Yes. Yes, they're not interested in the state of their people. And the, the argument of the Lao government that building dams is lifting Lao out of poverty is actually becoming absolutely the reverse argument because, mm. in fact, Lao can no longer pay for even for... No, it's bankrupt. It's already bankrupt. And China is uh, calling in uh, collateral. Right, so driving people further into poverty. And the people themselves will pay. The people themselves, it means that their public services mm. will not be increasing, it will be decreasing. Mm. Um, and, and that they never got that amount, the, the, uh, the amount of money that ever reached the public treasury in mm. Lao government from directly from Hyderabad is highly debatable because Thailand buys it cheap and Lao does not have a very good nationwide electricity grid. So well, they haven't got the grid going yet. So they have to they? buy right. back at a high price right. their own water power, right. electricity. They have to buy back for certain provinces yep. in order to yep. supply them with electricity. The, the cluster of dams that you were referring to earlier around uh, Zabri, there were reports about a year, two years ago, I think, where EGAT, the Thai uh, electricity buyer, supplier, was looking at terminating the contract with around Zabri. Uh, you have a military government in Thailand, and one thing they were concerned about, as any government would be, was that the sheer number of dams is threatening to change the border with Thailand. Thailand, Laos, they share a border, and what was raised as one prospect was that the, the border would shift and it would take territory away from Thailand. Has that cropped up lately? It just no, seems that, to have been that, a... That, was much, more, uh, that mm. was much more of a concern when China wanted to remove all the islets in the Mekong between um, Chiang Kong and Luang Prabang. Basically blow up the whole yeah, they all wanted the way to down. Blast it all the way down so that they could have... They could, uh, have Big Chinese ships shipping lanes and car parks lanes all the way down the map. Right, and and one of the, uh, in fact, uh, this is the one issue on which China, China has finally relented, and Thailand won a small victory, and the Mekong won a small victory. Right, but last year this was abandoned. Okay, by by the Thai government, but uh, and we should also mention here mm-hmm. that the huge part of the protest and resistance to what the Chinese wanted to do came from uh, the Thai Green Movement with a particular leadership in Chiang Kong on the Mekong mm-hmm. who were uh, extremely energetic in, expl- in lobbying the Thai government, uh, in, in uh, organizing all kinds of protests, even had an f- anti-dam festival and an uh, anti uh, contamination and uh, everything, you know, it was a festival mm-hmm. all about 
conservation of the Mekong. And the leader of that, Niwak Roy Kell, this year was awarded the Goldman Prize, the US Goldman Prize for Environmental Leadership and Activism. Right. Now, as we know, there is 70 million people in, living around the Mekong in the lower Mekong River Basin. Uh, there's been all sorts of, mainly out of the West, you won't see much out of Indochina, but there have been uh, several scenarios painted that uh, if the Mekong was to continue along its current trajectory, that uh, food security will become an issue, water security will become an issue, and this could turn the area into a hotbed of discontent. In fact, one of the biggest issues that wasn't raised at the recent round of ASEAN summits was the plight of the Mekong, and for many, that's the number two hotspot in the region after the South China Sea. I agree, and um, I think it's uh, quite scandalous that the um, food security was not on the agenda, because if the current if the current projections are correct, mm -hmm. according to uh, leading environmentalists from Vietnam from Cantor University and uh, a wetland specialist. In, in interviews with me, which I have published widely and also in my documentary, River Screams, he talks precisely about if all these dams get built on the lower Mekong, Vietnam will cease to be a rice exporter. He says probably there will be enough rice just to feed its own people uh, but there won't be enough rice to export. And as Vietnam, uh, during the last 10 years, mm -hmm. has, been, has ranked as the number two rice exporter in the world, this is a huge gap at a time when food security everywhere is becoming sure. more and more a global concern. So it's been a global concern in relation to the Ukraine, mm -hmm. but... Surely, just because we don't have the bombs going off and, and a military invasion... Not anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but yes. The man war is over. But the, uh, the, problem, the problem of food security is just as real in the Mekong. Well, well going historically, one would argue that uh, the reason why the North wanted the South so badly was for food security reasons. And if you're talking about by the end of next year, that would mean that... Vietnam ceases to become a net food exporter, which has uh, enormous ramifications for any economy, but uh, it would also just simply add to the inflation that keeps uh, keeps punching out. And Vietnam is, is a country that several countries inside ASEAN rely on right. for, for rice. Philippines, for example, imports massive amounts of rice mm -hmm. from Vietnam. Uh, and even another Vietnam, oh, sorry, Philippines has a huge population. Sure. Uh, so it's not going to be easy for them to find a, a substitute at, the, at, the, at such a good price because being fellow members of ASEAN, it means Philippines can have a good deal with Vietnam. Uh, so anyway, that, I mean, this is, this is enormously serious. And already the deprivation of fish well, the lack of fish uh, being caught now, I mean, mm. because uh, the figure is, the figure is that for Mekong provinces in northeastern Thailand, the fishermen are almost all of them report a thirty percent, sorry, 
correction, 70% devastating losses. Well, here, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a lot of fishermen here, and going back 10, 20 years, their daily catch was probably between 20 and 30 kilos. And uh, now it would be lucky to be three kilos. And uh, one of my favourite lines from an old fisherman was that picked up a little bamboo basket and showed me his catch and he was like, not enough for the village cat. Yeah, exactly. What, mean, would you, yeah. what would you like to see happen in an ideal world? Before we get mm. to an ideal world, sure, okay. that would take a bit longer. <laughs> but <laughs> right. a short answer to your question. Yeah, that's fine. A short answer to your question is, it's when a policy, a, poli- a general development policy mm-hmm. for a river or for a region is so obviously failing if it's losing its major food resources and it can't, it's not feeding people in the way that the Mekong always did for generations. Clearly, you have to question the path. You have to have a serious debate and you have to have a break in the damaging things which are going on. A break means calling for a moratorium on all mainstream to begin with. Mm. Mainstream, well, then I would also add tributaries. All the mainstream dams, there should be no dams built at all for the rest of 2022 and for the next four or five years. This is the demand that the Mekong River Commission and the member governments have no willingness to hear it. It's like a dissident voice. I was going to follow up with that. It, and just, it's, 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 like, the, it's a bloody-mindedness. Right. They don't want to admit they're wrong, that in, this has done damage. They just don't want to admit see, it. Increasingly, uh, we, we used to always refer to uh, people who want to change the political system so they become classified as dissidents, Right. the, the enemy of the state. But now we have an increasing tendency... But people who just say, I want to tell the government we don't want a dam. Now you are an environmental dissident. Right. And you then, are going against yeah. the mainstream of the, of the mainstream of neoliberal capitalist economics in which you do not allow serious restructuring of wealth. Uh, and and that the rich people mm. are okay, thank you very much, and we want to keep it that way. And just quickly, because we are running out of time, you uh, what you're saying brings to my mind the plight of uh, Somporn, yes. who disappeared about 14 yeah. years ago. The guy was an agricultural rural developer, and simply because he was helping farmers, mm. he was grabbed from the streets, thrown in the back of a car and never seen again. And how can anybody like him be seen as a threat? But it seems to me... He was regarded as an enemy of the state because his, his efforts were channeled throughout his life to a, an attempt to have a, a developed a pro-poor, pro-people development policy in which he would uh, bring experts to rural areas, share knowledge with them, and try to create the conditions for what's known as empowerment. 
powerless people uh, being given the intellectual uh, assistance, technical assistance, so that they can find their own voice about the kind of path of development which is going to be right for them, so their communities, their villages can thrive. So it's it's a putting people first development policy. Right. Many governments see that as a threat. This is even even Western democratic governments, they don't see that as essential for democracy at all, because democracy they would prefer to channel through elites, through business, through techno uh, technocrats and things like that. So it's a challenge to to traditional forms of democracy and it's called grassroots democracy and village democracy and building for democracy from the, from the roots up. Uh, and which is acceptable in, in in many countries, but is increasingly where you have where you have like in Aziz so many authoritarian regimes and so many military regimes, you can you're seen as a threat, uh, and and you will see a uh, increasing death toll of environmental activists uh, being being killed, or if not killed, they're jailed, and if they're not jailed, they're they're silenced in other other ways. And perhaps on that less than positive note, Tom Forthrop, thanks very much. Thank you.